2010, I, I took a mission trip. My New Testament professor, Brian Vickers, led the trip. Myself, two brothers and two sisters went on a, a two-week and change trip to support the work of an IMB missionary in northeast India. Now, there were many unique things about this mission trip. One, eating with my hands. It's customary in India to scoop food with your hands and then to use your thumb like, like a pushing mechanism to push the food into your mouth. And I had the reputation amongst my Indian brothers to be a very ugly eater. <laughs> uh, the chaos of driving sticks out in my mind. I am told that there are rules to the road, but experientially it does not seem like that. Every road, any road is filled with rickshaws, people, farm animals, mobile shops, cars, bikes. Everybody seems to think they have the right of way. How we got anywhere without killing anyone or anything without being killed is beyond me. Very exciting. In fact, I was in the front row on the first day driving in Delhi and I was like, whoa. And my professor was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm totally cool. He's like, some people get really freaked out and overwhelmed by this. I'm like, this rocks, man. Uh, All right. The taste and flavor of food, so unique. Caveat at the end, I think I was going to slap somebody if something tasted like curry. I needed normal food at the end, but it was very unique and I enjoyed it for most of the time. But one of the most significant memories of the trip were the sheer number of idols that were everywhere. Idols on the dash of the taxi, idols on the shelves of every store, idols on the fire burning outside the house, burned as a means of placating gods, idols on flags from every rooftop in front of every window over every bridge, idols, idols, idols everywhere. In fact, our interpreter, Vito Tapa, told me one thing that troubled him whenever he worked with American missions teams is that they would buy idols as souvenirs. He could not fathom why anyone would do such a thing. Do they not know what this represents, he told me. This, of course, is what comes to our mind when we think of idolatry. Little wooden statues that represent some Hindu or Buddhist god. But I don't think that we think idolatry is a problem for us. We think idolatry is mostly this, this physical thing. And it is that, but it is so much more. And it is not just a problem in the East. It is alive and well in America, alive and well in our lives. RGC, we are actually just as easily tempted to idolatry in Georgia, Vermont, as anyone in Northeast India is. Just a subtler form. And today, through the second commandment, Lord willing, we're going to come to understand that statement. We're going to come to understand idolatry more fully, come to see the subtle ways we are tempted to it, and by God's grace, Lord willing, we will determine to flee from it. Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20. Uh, This is our second week in the Ten Commandments. 
If you're a visitor with us, we make it our habit as a general rule to work through books of the Bible. We want to let God's Word set the agenda for our instruction. But sometimes we have topical series where we step aside and we consider a particular topic. Well, this is a series on the Ten Commandments, such a foundational element in God's Word. We thought it would be good to give ourselves ten weeks to look at each commandment to understand it. So that's what we're doing, and we're in the second Week. And I want to just give you a few words of context as we jump in. First, these commands are not given by God as a way to earn or work our way into a relationship with Him. These commands are given to a people already in relationship with Him. God gave the Ten Commandments to His people Israel after He delivered them from Egypt by grace, not before. And now he instructs them concerning how they're to live as his redeemed people. So these are not a salvation by works paradigm. Two, these commandments are given to his people in a different covenantal arrangement than the one we are in. We, brother, sister, Christian, we are part of the new covenant. The covenant that Christ inaugurated by his death, burial, and resurrection. So we are not part of Israel in the Old Testament or the covenant under which she was. Yet, we know that God's morality does not change, right? Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. So while the way God deals with his people does change from the Old Testament to the New, the Levitical system is no more, the church is not a theocracy as Israel was, The Lord himself does not change. And so we don't throw out our Old Testaments after the coming of Christ. No, what we do is we look to Christ to see him in and through him how the Old Testament in general and how the New Ten Commandments in specific are fulfilled and apply to us. So let's look at this command. Let's look at Christ And then let's look at us. And that's basically the three points of the sermon that we're going to walk through. If you're helped by sermon, you might be helped by following that there. So let's look at this command. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's grace. Wonderful, amazing grace. That's the relationship God established with them when he saved them. You shall have no other gods before me. There's the first commandment. Undivided allegiance is the essence of it. You shall have, and now the second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's the essence of this command? The essence of the first command is undivided allegiance. What's the essence of the second? Undiminished worship. Undiminished worship. Kevin DeYoung puts it like this, quote, if the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God, 
The second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. You know what a huge problem for God's people in every age is? Old and New Covenant? Worshiping God as we see fit rather than as he demands to be worshipped. That's what this command is getting at. We cannot worship him as we see fit. We must worship him as he sees fit. And there are two prohibitions here. Numero uno, we are not to make carved images. We are not to make images, excuse me, carved or otherwise. We are not to make images to represent God in any form. That's verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath that is in the water under the earth. That's one. Two, we're not to worship images of any kind. That's verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. This is not a prohibition against art in general. The Old Testament tabernacle was breathtaking and filled with artistic beauty. God himself equipped Bezalel and Oholiab as skilled artists and craftsmen. What's forbidden here, and listen to me closely, what's forbidden here is infusing any object with spiritual power. As if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, can represent God, or can establish communion with God. In its simplest form, idolatry takes something created, a wooden figure, and it says... This represents God. That's what the Baal worshippers did. They took things and they ascribed to them power or representation of Baal or Asherah. That's outright pagan idolatry. But God's people are tempted towards the same thing. They can take something created and say, this represents God. Or they can take something created and think that it has spiritual power. As if something man-made can bring them closer to God or establish communion with God. And the Old Testament is filled with examples of Israel doing just this. Do you remember the golden calf? Exodus 32. Aaron fashions a golden calf and then proclaimed a feast not to Baal, but to who? The Lord. He said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They weren't worshiping Baal or Asherah here. They were trying to worship the Lord, but they were doing it in totally the wrong way. Creating a man-made thing that they said represented the Lord. That's a violation of the second commandment. At other times, Israel treated their religious symbols as though they had real power. So this too is a violation of the second commandment. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people treated the ark. Do you remember the ark? It was in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. But in 1 Samuel 4, they treated the ark like it was a magic charm. So they were afraid to go in the battle with the Philistines. They, they brought the ark into their midst and they were like, aha, now we're going to win because we've got God, the ark. And they got their butts handed to them. In, J- in Jeremiah 7, we see the same thing. They actually treated the temple 
Like it was a, a magic tool as well. They were like, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, why are you saying that over and over when you don't live according to God's commands? He's basically saying, it's not a magic charm. You've turned it into an idol. So again, idolatry is infusing any created thing with spiritual power as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. Why is God so hot under the collar about this? Why does he forbid this? Two reasons. Number one, Images dishonor God by obscuring his glory. Images make God like us. Images bring God down to our level. But God is not like us. John 4.24 tells us that God is non-physical. He is spirit and he doesn't have a body like a man. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible. The only God. Be glory and honor forever and ever. We often sing a very rich hymn together on Sunday mornings. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. You want to sing with me? Okay, we won't sing right now. But we sing that song, and it's glorious, and the words are right out of 1 Timothy. Why do we sing it? Because it's true. Because God is exalted. He's glorious. He is other. He is spirit. To image him... With created things is to obscure his glory, it's to bring him down. Further, God is omnipresent. Big word that just means God is everywhere. God is everywhere, but an image is localized. An image is here, it is not there, but there is no place where God is not. Where can I go from your presence? The psalmist asks. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. Who is able to build him a house, King Solomon asks, since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him. So to image, so an image, restricting his presence to here, wherever here is, obscures his glory. This is why he spoke his law. He spoke his law on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 4, therefore watch yourselves carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. This is why when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, he was only allowed a partial viewing because no man can see God and live, Exodus 33, 20. God is glorious beyond our comprehension and that's the point. Images make him comprehensible in ways that he has not authorized. And another reason why images are forbidden is because they distort God, conveying lies about him. 
What are the lies that images tell us about God? Just think about it. Images tell us that God can be made accessible to us. That's what Israel wanted with the golden calf. God speaking to them out of the midst of the fire was mysterious and other and majestic and mighty and fearful. They wanted a God more accessible. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted a God they could grab a hold of and touch and feel. Images tell us that God can be tamed. He can be whatever we envision him as in our minds and fashion him with our hands. Images tell us that God can be manipulated. You you bow down to an image, you bring an image with you into battle, the God that image represents is forced to act. That's manipulation. Images tell us that God is created. All images are made, they are fashioned, they are created. But God is not made, fashioned, or created. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He is the creator of all, which is why he refuses to be depicted by the creation. And images tell us that there are mediators other than his appointed mediators. And this is a big one. Images provide a way to get to God. Supposedly. In a sense, they're mediators. The problem with that is that God provides his own mediators. Moses, who of course points us to another, whom we will get to in a moment. But images do an end run around God's appointed mediators. And this is a lie. And he will not have it. And so hopefully you can see why God is so serious about idolatry. Look look again at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is serious about idolatry because he is jealous. Now, out of embarrassment, uh, some may want to redefine God here. Explain away this jealousy thing somehow. Which, by the way, redefining God is its own form of idolatry. It's, it's creating him in, in our image. We're going to get to that too. So some out of embarrassment want to explain this jealousy thing away. Others take verses like this as a reason to reject God outright. I, I, don't, I, I don't want to serve a jealous God. I am, I'm out. But the fact remains, God is jealous. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of. He saved Israel. He brought Israel to himself. She is his bride. He loves her. Of course, he is jealous for that relationship to remain pure. And of course, if she is unfaithful to him, that incites his wrath. That's that's where you see God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that a righteous child 
will be punished unfairly for the sins of his wicked father. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So God isn't saying, tough break, kid, your dad was wicked, I'm really going to let you have it, okay? But what does it mean? I'd put it like this. The way God set things up is that fathers, the way you live your life will impact your posterity for good or for ill for generations. Fathers, if you are wicked, you set up your children for wickedness. Now again, praise God. Kids can repent and turn from their father's sins. That's what happened with me. My dad's not in Christ. But ungodliness in the home is powerful. And it, its effects are long-lasting. And the opposite is true as well. Godliness in the home is powerful and its effects are long-lasting too, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that's, again, not a promise that if you're godly, your kids are going to be saved. It's not a promise. But it is to say that your godliness will impact your posterity for good for generations I almost want to stop and I just want to preach a whole sermon dads to you on this Father's Day of the incredible responsibility that you have to love God and that you more than anyone in your home your love for Jesus and his church, that's more determinative of the direction your kids are going to head than anything else. You can have, mark my words, the godliest, most involved mother. But if the father is lukewarm, disinterested, disengaged at home, disengaged from the church, you set the trajectory for your home, men. This is a warning to you, brothers. And stepping outside of that specific application on this Father's Day, this is a warning to all of us. This is a warning to all of us of the deadly seriousness with which God treats idolatry. It brings His wrath. And I want to suggest to you there is one reason standing above even all the others that I've mentioned why it incites his wrath like this. The reason God absolutely forbids images is because he from all eternity has planned to image himself perfectly through his son. The essence of the second command is undiminished worship. And we see it in Jesus. Consider with me Christ. Christ is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Every image somehow distorts God. Every image somehow presents him as less than he is. But in Jesus, God's image is perfectly displayed. Aren't these verses just ridiculously clear? Were you hearing me read them to you? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Every idol is a distorted imprint of his nature, but not Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. Every idol tells lies about the Father, but not Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. God wants a true depiction of himself, and his son is the only one that will do. He detests idols because idols detract from his glory that he displays in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's the unbelievable thing. In Jesus, God has really become accessible to us. Remember what I said about the Israelites and the golden calf? They wanted God accessible. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted a God they could grab hold of. They wanted a God they could touch. It is mind-blowing to think it, but that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has made himself accessible to us. He has condescended to us. He has revealed himself to us. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. God has come down to us in the person of his son. God has removed the veil of mystery. The Israelites were not allowed to come up to the mount. Moses was not allowed to see the fullness of the glory of God. But in Jesus, God has come down from the mount. In Jesus, we see the fullness of his glory. You should be excited. This is almost too, no, this is too wonderful. The unchanging, eternal, immortal, invisible God, only wise, he would take on flesh and dwell amongst us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And God did it. God did it, keep listening, to provide for us what no idol can provide. Access to himself. Remember, every idol is, is, is somehow offering mediatorial uh, services. Idols are a go-between. And you know what? The fact is, we need a go-between. We, we do. Because we are sinful. And God is holy. And we are not. So maybe the folks in India who are burning that idol to placate gods, maybe they actually understand a little bit more than we do because we don't even think we need a mediator. But we do. We are right to instinctually know that we can't barge into the presence of God and assume that everything's going to go okay. And so God has provided For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 2 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, the second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life of obedience and worship to God, And then he offered himself upon the cross as a substitute sacrifice for sinners and rose from the grave three days later. In Jesus, God has provided the way for us to be with him. In Jesus, God has provided the way for us to be accepted by him. Jesus does for us what no idol could ever do. Bring us to God. If you're here this morning and you're searching for truth, here's the truth. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He offers forgiveness and life through turning from your sin and through trusting in Him. And further, if you're here searching for truth, you should know this. Jesus Christ transforms the second commandment. The second commandment is all about undiminished worship And on this side of the cross of Jesus, we fulfill that commandment by worshiping Jesus Christ alone. God has never wanted us to bow down to idols because he wants us to bow down to Jesus Christ. This is something that false religions get wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, they say it is wrong to worship Jesus Christ. It is right to worship Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is God. He is the God-man, truly God and truly man. Therefore, it is no sin to worship him because to worship him is to worship God. So this is not idolatry. This is not breaking the second commandment. In fact, it is obeying the second commandment. God wants every knee to bow, not to an idol, but to Jesus Christ. God wants every tongue to confess allegiance, not to an idol, but to Jesus Christ. What, is, what are the angelic beings doing right now? Crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The angels are worshiping Jesus Christ. And God is not offended, God is glorified. We worship the Son in obedience to the second commandment. We worship Jesus Christ alone to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I want to transition here. Because undiminished worship is not fulfilled by us coming together on Sunday morning. This is worship. Hear me, this is quite possibly the most important hour and a half of your entire week, every week. But the command to worship God in Christ alone must be fulfilled Monday through Saturday as well. Because we worship Him through living for Him, right? And so we have to think through some of the implications of idolatry for us, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday too. Ask yourself this, what What idols are out there today tempting to steal your worship from Jesus Christ alone? First of all, we we think ourselves immune to the more crass versions of idolatry like the ones in India. But America is starting to look more and more like India because America is sloughing off our Judeo-Christian Heritage, and so we're seeing increased outright idolatry more and more where we are. Eastern religion, with its mysticism and polytheism, is very popular here. Have you heard of mindfulness? It's, it's taught in schools, it's encouraged by many therapists, but much of it is rooted in Eastern mysticism, and so Christians just need to be careful. Christians need to be careful of yoga. Now, the westernized version of yoga is tame, mostly consists of stretching, but I think it would be better to call it stretching and not yoga because yoga itself is religious. The ultimate goal of yoga is to lead you to unity with the divine, Atman and Brahman. This is right off Wikipedia. Not some strange website. So Christian, you actually have to be careful here. Are you thinking Wikipedia is strange? Maybe it is. (laughs) Further, you could go to almost any coffee shop or any grocery store and you're going to see posters advertising straight up pagan worship worshiping the creation in some form, bowing down to the sun, the moon, the stars, something. So all that to say, we've actually got outright crass idolatry on the rise here in America. And Christian, you need to be aware of that because it's finding its way into normal life. And if you're unthinking, you can participate in it. Just ho-diddly-dee. You should also know that careful reflection on this command through Christ is what's led careful theologians throughout the history of the church to articulate something called the regulative principle. The gist of the regulative principle is that we let God's word 
tell us how he wants to be worshipped when we come together as a church, and we don't make up our own rules. So have you ever wondered why we do what we do in worship? Well, it's because the Word prescribes what we should do. And when you go to the Word and look at it carefully, what you see is that we, we sing, we pray, we hear God's Word preached, we celebrate the ordinances He's given to the church, We do these things because these are the things that he said he wants for us to do, and so we do them. And and so this is also why we don't do other things on Sunday morning, like a a puppet show, just to give you a for instance. I, I don't mean it as a joke, but some churches would do a puppet show. I would think that to be out of keeping with what God's Word says happens in the gathered congregation on Sunday. So we don't do a puppet show or... We don't do interpretive dancing. Or we don't do away with the sermon in exchange for a dialogue or a conversation or a book discussion. We, we look to God's Word and we look to the history of the church to say, how does God Himself want to be worshipped? And this is not a chain for us. It actually frees us from the chains of being bound by every trend of every age that says, this is how you're going to win people. Instead of saying, you're going to win people by preaching the gospel and building up the church. Now, a word about images and worship. To use pictures or icons in worship, to use those things to focus us in prayer, let alone kissing or kneeling before an image or a statue that is misplaced. And the old distinction between worship and veneration will not do. That is a distinction without a difference. If we bow to an image, if we bow to a relic, if we bow to an icon or focus on it or think we need it or we think a necklace of a saint or of Jesus around our neck, if we think we need this to be closer to God or to be protected or to be in his favor, this is a violation of the second commandment. Now this doesn't mean you need to trash all your nativity sets when you go home or set your children's story Bibles aflame. But we can't let ourselves think that we worship God through these things. These things can be useful teaching tools no more. Further, there are implications for our lives of worship. There are ways we can give ourselves to functional idols. I say functional idols because there are things that we worship. We don't think we're worshiping them. But our lives reveal that we're worshiping them even if we say we're not. And so it's not explicit idolatry. It's functional idolatry. And we're actually serving an idol though we don't even recognize it. And there are many fine things which can become functional idols. We can end up serving them. Or they compete for our affection for Jesus and Jesus alone. What might some of them be? Well, money. Well, pleasure. Sex or leisure or just generally speaking comfort. Entertainment. Children can actually become a functional idol. 
obedient children, successful children, children who excel in sports. Appearance can become an idol. Alcohol can become an idol. Self-reliance can be an idol. Unhealthy dependence can be an idol. The longing for acceptance and approval of others can be an idol. How do you know if you serve a functional idol? I'd say it like this. It's revealed if you'll sin to get it or you'll sin if you don't get it. If you'll sin to get something, then what that means is that at that moment, that thing means more to you than Jesus Christ. And so it's become a functional idol. Or if you'll sin, if you don't get it, what that reveals is that that thing at that point in time means more to you than obedience to Jesus Christ. It has become a functional idol. And so if with our money we don't honor God as he tells us we should honor him and we're doing other things, then money has become a functional idol. If... Ladies, your kids are not obedient and you you cannot be happy in Christ. Then that means obedient children actually have become a functional idol. If our allegiance to sports leads us to disobey God and, and not be with his people consistently on Sunday morning, then that means our kids' sports have become a functional idol. Something becomes a functional idol when you will sin to get it. Or when you sin if you don't get it. I trust you'll reflect on these things. These things are not things that other people struggle with. These things are things that I struggle with. You want to know what one of my functional idols is? Comfort. And the expectation that if I honor God, things will go well. Now, I tell you when I'm counseling you that that is a lie. And I believe it. That is a lie. But you know what happens when things don't go well for me? I get upset. Or I look for escape. Sometimes to sinful things. And do you know what that reveals? It reveals that I have an expectation that this will go well. My life will go well because I'm honoring God. And so I have to recognize that's a functional idol. And I have to actively repent of it. When I see it cropping its way into my life. Oftentimes, if I'm mad, I immediately have to stop and think. How is my number one functional idol cropping up right here? Another one for me is fear of man. The desire to be accepted and approved. If I'm tense about telling you something that I think needs to be said, why am I tense about it? Because I'm fearing what you might think about me. Now, typically, it doesn't keep me from saying it, but do you know what it does? It eats me up inside. 
And that's my problem, not yours. It's because I serve a functional idol of acceptance and approval at times. I have to fight that. So you can serve functional idols, brothers and sisters, and that is breaking the second commandment through Christ. Things can compete for your affections. And Jesus Christ says, I'm the only one that should have all of your affection. One more. Beware of creating a God in your own image. I think this is one that our culture does in a huge way. And we can be tempted to do in a smaller way. You create a God in your own image when you want to somehow redefine him according to what you think is reasonable or what the culture thinks is reasonable instead of how he reveals himself to be. This is why I encourage all Christians, when you come across any text and it makes you feel uncomfortable, never ask of a text, do do I like this? Does it make me feel comfortable or uncomfortable? Who cares what it makes you feel like? Is it true? Try to understand it. Because if you allow your response to the truth of God's word to be one that says, well, I don't like how that makes me feel, I'm I'm going to try to figure a way around that. That's dangerous territory. So people can create God in their own image when they think things like this. My God, well, my God would never send anyone to hell. But that's not the God of the Bible. People create a functional idol when they think, well, my God would not give me success in my endeavors provided I I honor him and serve him. Well, that's... That's not something God promises in the Bible. People create a functional idol when they think, my God wouldn't not save my kids. That's not a promise God gives in the Bible. We can make him into our image based upon what we think is reasonable or right. Beware of that, brothers and sisters. That's creating God according to your image instead of how he's revealed himself to be. Let him be who he is because trust me, he is better than who you imagine him to be. And how do you know? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all you need. The cross of Jesus Christ. He has given you, brothers and sisters, what you do not deserve, life. And he gave to his son, what you did deserve, condemnation. So you know he's good because he's shown you grace. That's all you need to know. And you can trust him for the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you, hopefully, a bit of a chastened people. I know I need to be chastened at times with the weight of your glory, with your holiness. And yet at the same time, we come to you happy people because you have satisfied yourself 
through Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and we are yours through him. And so we come this morning and we come every Sunday morning to be reminded of both. The gravity of our God and the gladness that our God provides through Jesus Christ. Father, we anticipate seeing you face to face. And this meal that we are about to eat is a foretaste of it. So we thank you for it. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who you are, Father. In your precious Son's name we pray, amen.